Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hi everybody, this is Caroline and Nicola at SheWroteToo.substack.com and this week we're going to be talking about a book by a writer who's perhaps a little bit better known than some of the ones that we've talked about before. That's Charlotte Perkins Gilman and we're going to be focusing on her book Her Land. Yes, because although she is better known than some of the writers that we have concentrated on, this is not her most famous work, is it? She's really well known for the yellow wallpaper. Yes, which has become popular again probably since about the 1970s. Indeed, so we thought we would look at her lesser known work, which we think is uh, meritous. I think it was recognised as such at the time. Yeah, and I think so. also we thought it was interesting because we have before talked about a feminist utopia called Ladyland. And so we've got some points of comparison to draw with that. Yes, there are some similarities and some big differences, aren't there? I can't remember the title of that particular episode, but... Um, if I think you... we just called it Sultana's Dream, which is the title of the book. That's so. right, yes, Sultana's Dream. Mm. So if you want to listen to that episode as well, tell all your friends, subscribe, share it the world over. So, Caroline, are we going to think about Charlotte's background to start with, or should we give a quick plot summary. Let's give a quick plot summary first so that people know what it's all about. And as usual, there will of course be spoilers. There isn't really any big mysteries or anything in this one, so um, we will be just talking about it right to the end and what happens. And there are going to be some discussions of some quite sensitive issues, some very brief discussion of suicide and some discussion of racism. Okay, right. Well, this is an interesting story, isn't it? Because we've looked at Ladyland before and we've got another utopia, in some ways, where the population of a land is entirely female. Yes. Lots of differences from our previous discussion about Ladyland. Different book, obviously. This time, the narrator or the story is told from the point of view of some men who are visiting her land. Mm. So the situation is that these three men are explorers and they hear about this possibly mythical or possibly real land where the entire population is female. Nobody from the modern world has ever managed to find it. They don't know if it's real. So they go on their own expedition to go and have a look and they get in their plane and they manage to find this place. That's right. So the three of them set off 
together. Terry, Jeff and Van. Yeah. And we will talk about them as characters rather later on. So they find this this land, her land, Mm -hmm. and they are observing it from uh, a distance initially Mm. and they don't really believe it. Mm. There's quite a lot about her land that they insist in their conversation that there must be some men involved yeah. here. Which, on the face of it, is a pretty reasonable position because this society has been carrying on for a couple of thousand years. They are reproducing and it's reasonable to wonder how on earth they're doing that. That's right. And so we have our narrator is Van, who tells us from the outset that he doesn't have any pictures or notes or anything like that, so that this is all from memory. So he sets himself up as an unreliable narrator, uh, which I found quite an mm. interesting way to start a book. Remind me of um, Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> and so they explore, thinking that they are alone. But they're being watched the entire time by yes. three young women who are going to become important characters in the story, and that's Elidor, Alima and Kellis. And they are captured they're anaesthetised, they? so there's obviously some sort of drugs which can knock them out and then they wake up in the centre of civilization. Yes, and they are kept prisoner there. Yes. The women weren't brutal or unkind to them, they treated them very well, mm-hmm. but they were prisoners. And so it brings in themes of that were sort of popular at that time. The audience would have been aware of, say, Ibsen's Doll's House mm-hmm. and the idea that women are kept prisoner in in gilded cages and brings in another interesting approach by the men being treated in this way. That's what we saw in Begum Rakea's story about Ladyland as well, Sultana's Mm. Dream, of which there is an episode that you can listen to if you haven't done already. And there, there were men in her society, but they were kept secluded as the women were in real life. So in this version of a utopia, there aren't any men, usually, but when these men turn up, they are kept under very close watch. Yes. So the men don't have any power, really, in, the, in this situation. And the women want to educate them. Yeah. That's so sort of what their purpose is in keeping them, isn't it? It's to teach them. It's to teach them, but also to learn from them as well, because mm. they're really interested in what is going on in the outside world. They know that there is something out there. And they allocate a woman to each of the men to be the teacher. So these are older women who are kind of looking after them and learning from them and teaching them the language so that they can communicate. And through that educational relationship, we find out about what Herland is like and its history and how they ended up the way they did. And it seems that originally they did have men there about a couple of thousand years ago. And the men were all... Were they all fighting in this one? Yeah, they were killed by by war. Hmm. And then I think they tried to oppress the women and they were keeping slaves. Mm -hmm. And there weren't very many men left, so the women killed them (laughs) and got rid of them. And then... They were cut off from everything because of a natural disaster. I think a big boulder came and blocked off their only access to the outside world. So that's why they became this society without any outside influence. After a little while, people were still dying, but they discovered that a woman was pregnant without any input from any men. Mm. And this was parthenogenesis, which is how they have been reproducing ever since. 
So the first woman, I think, had five children, and then mm, they there was each had five. five children. So that got the population going, mm-hmm. but they don't all do that anymore. But the the children grow up in her land, learning the ways of her land. Education is a really important theme in the in the novel, and. And their education starts from day one, and it's not really formal. It's not like going to school. It's about learning intuitively right from when you're a tiny baby and growing up. Developing as people and learning to live as community. It wasn't mm-hmm. about learning as an individual as such. It was learning mm-hmm. to take your place in society mm-hmm. and to work alongside nature. Mm. Um, and as people grow up, they tend to specialise in something that they're particularly talented at. So you'll get professional child carers who look after lots of the children together. You'll get people who are foresters, like the three young women who are significant characters in this. They're working in the forests. And you just get people who will do all the different things that society needs in order to operate cohesively. So we, through these three men... They are learning about her land. We've got Terry, Van and Jeff, and they're three quite different men. Mm-hmm. But basically, Terry's the sexist. Van is, um, he's quite patriarchal. And Jeff is the most sort of modern thinking. Yeah, he's kind Would of... you agree with Well, that? he's romantic, but in a chivalrous way that actually doesn't see womanhood is being separated from femininity he puts women on a pedestal and is very nice to them but he still has this quite stereotyped view of them and then we've got van who is the narrator and he obviously is not going to present himself as being bad in any way but he always says how scientific and rational he is so he's the <laughs> one that takes up women's time getting them to explain things all the time oh yes that's right yes <laughs> I'd, I'd momentarily forgotten about that mm. Yes, Jeff is very chivalrous and he almost infantilises the women yes, in some he does. ways, doesn't mm. he? So they need looking after. Yeah. So none of them really understand how this society is working and much of the novel is about their education. Some people have been critical that it rather lacks in plot. Mm. You know, men turn up, find her land. And then they learn try about and escape. how it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't get away with it until actually in the end they get expelled yeah, so some people have criticised that there isn't really a strong story running through it. And you do get sections where there's just a page or two of explanation about society, about their religion and their culture. But I think that's what Charlotte Perkins Gilman wanted to do. This was originally published in her own magazine called The Forerunner, which she did in the later part of her life. And she wrote everything in this magazine. It was all done by her, and she used that as a vehicle for her campaigning. She was a very strong campaigner on social issues, and her purpose in writing this was not just to write something fictional, but also to give these views that she wanted to convey. There's a lot of ideas that we'll go through shortly after we consider a little bit more about her life. Yeah, let's talk about her. So let's talk about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a very interesting woman. She was born in 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut, and she was one of just two children, relatively small family for the time. She had an older brother. And when they were very little, her father just left 
they completely abandoned them. So her mother was doing everything she could to look after them, but they were really in quite a destitute situation. So they come from a background which I suppose you would have considered middle class, but then they ended up really not having any money or any advantages. So her childhood was quite isolated. They were moving around a lot and staying with various relatives. She did have some quite famous relatives. Harriet Beecher Stowe was her great aunt, very famous for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. So she was spending a lot of time with her and with various other relations. And she did go to school, but it wasn't really for her. She wasn't a particularly academic person, although she was intelligent. So her teachers would get quite frustrated with her. I found that particularly interesting that she is another one of our female writers that we've looked at that doesn't have much in the way of a formal education. Mm. And I think this might have perhaps been one of the reasons why she was so interested in the concept of education and what mm. it means. Because you can learn an awful lot without being in a formal education. Yeah, and obviously being in that situation was not right for her. So she was probably exploring different ways of doing that in her land. But she did make it through school and got to the School of Design in Rhode Island, which meant that she trained as an illustrator and she did that. She was making advertising trade cards, which were a way of promoting products in the US and she would do those for soap and products like that and then she got married when she was 24 to Charles Walter Stetson so some of her early work was published under the name Charlotte Perkins Stetson he was an artist as well she wasn't really sure about this marriage but she did end up going into it anyway and about a year later she had a baby Catherine and She suffered from severe postnatal depression, as we would now recognise it. But at the time, things like that were considered part of women's hysteria and being all down to nerves and somewhat dismissed. And she was subjected to the rest cure. Yes. The rest cure, wasn't Mm. she? Which would become very important in her work and in how she's remembered. So she had to do this rest cure. That meant doing absolutely nothing. No intellectual stimulation, no physical exercise. And she also had to keep the baby with her all the time. So it was an absolute nightmare. Yes. So that made her feelings much, much worse. She became more mentally ill as a result of that. And that was the cure that she then very famously went on to write about in her best-known story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which is about a woman who has had a baby and is suffering this lowness of spirits and is prescribed the rest cure. She has to stay in this room and she starts seeing things in the pattern of this ugly yellow wallpaper and thinking that she can see um, horrific, nightmarish figures and eventually descends into a situation where she feels that she has become one of those figures in the wallpaper. So it's a really effective depiction of the mental anguish Mm. that would be caused to women at that time for Mm. this and a reminder of how, I think things have improved slightly. A bit, yeah, um, but there's still some issues. We were just talking the other day about, I think it was government or one of the government bodies had started to recommend CBT for menopausal symptoms. So it's kind of like, yep, your hormones will respond to being told um, (laughs) to take that thought to court. Take that thought to court. court. Yes, (laughs) yes, challenge those thoughts for this biological condition that you have of being female. Yes, so things have improved slightly, but arguably not enough yet. 
She realised that actually the best thing for her would be to separate from her husband. So that happened in 1888 and she moved away and her mental health did start to improve. And she at that point started a relationship with a woman called Adeline Knapp. Now, one can't help but wonder Mm -hmm. if getting away from a man and starting to feel better (laughs) and having a life with another woman might have just given her some inspiration for an alternative (laughs) way of living. Mm. Their relationship was pretty tempestuous and it didn't last. So she then moved with her daughter to Pasadena, I think, in California. And at some point, I'm not sure exactly when during this episode of her life but she supported them by selling soap from door to door Mm. so this was one of the various jobs that she had she as i said she'd previously been a designer of trade cards she'd done tutoring at some point so she knew very well that you had to work at whatever job you could get in order to make enough money to survive it struck me that she was quite inventive and quite Mm. resilient because she was doing whatever it took wasn't Mm. she yeah but she also was getting involved in social and political issues and she became a lecturer, which she was very good at. And she, one of the things that she campaigned about was the relief of domestic pressure on women. She thought that if there was a more equal distribution of domestic responsibilities, then women could play much more of a role in society and that it was domestic pressure that was keeping them down. And one of the things she also believed in was the distribution of childcare and paternal rights. She thought that in situations of custody, that should be even between the two partners and she did send Catherine to stay with her ex-husband when Catherine was I think about 12 or so. Yes I like this part of the story it's Mm. quite interesting in that he was now with one of her friends. Yes they were they they got married yes they were Grace Channing um, was his second wife and was a close friend of Charlotte's and they all seemed to have got on pretty well and she was quite happy to share the parenting of Catherine with her friend and ex-husband. Yeah. Which is an idea that is explored in her land, Mm. that actually you are not necessarily the best person particularly Mm. to care for your child just on the basis that you gave birth to them, Mm. which is quite an unusual idea now. Yes. I think it was pretty... It would have been more unusual at the time. Mm. Yeah, so um, a very unusual situation, but one that did work out well for everybody, including Catherine, as far as we know. Then Charlotte got married again in 1900 to somebody who'd been an old friend, Horton Gilman. And this was a much better experience of marriage. They were pretty happy together until his death. And while they were married, she started up her own monthly magazine, which I mentioned earlier, called The Forerunner. Yes. And this was something where she did all the content for it. Obviously, that's very, very difficult to maintain. And so I think she probably put her use of that as a vehicle for her views ahead of the actual quality of the writing and the stories that were in it. So apparently it did deteriorate somewhat as it went on. Caroline, when when you say she was providing all the content, Mm. you mean she was doing the adverts, she was putting it together, there was no help, no team. No, nothing at all. She was doing everything. Everything, yeah, including the the text for the adverts in it, um, all of the stories. She selling the advertising space as well. Yeah. So So she was doing a team's worth of work. Yes, which is not really sustainable for anybody. But this was for her campaigning and social commentary as well as still lecturing and being quite a public figure at the same time. And it was in the Forerunner magazine that Herland was serialised in 1915. And there were 
sequels to that. She then um, showed some of the characters as they were back in our land. Mm. Yes, because the ending is quite open and it's not surprising when you when you learn oh yeah <laughs> there, there was there was a sequel to this yeah and then we just talked briefly about the end of her life and this is the bit that needs a content warning of suicide because she did take her own life but this wasn't as a result of the depression that she had previously suffered and was prone to she was diagnosed with breast cancer and at that time It was sometimes possible for breast cancer to be cured by surgery, but in general, it wasn't a good prognosis as it is now. So she knew that her life was going to become very painful and that she would die, and she made a rational decision to take her own life using chloroform. Yes, and this is something that we felt quite sad about reading, Mm -hmm. but we're also pleased to consider that in a modern context, this wouldn't be a, a choice that most people would need to be no. making. So it's a really good prognosis for many forms of breast cancer now. Yes. She said, human life consists in mutual service. No grief, pain, misfortune or broken heart is excuse for cutting off one's life while any power of service remains. But when all usefulness is over, when one is assured of an unavoidable and imminent death, It is the simplest of human rights to choose a quick and easy path in place of a slow and horrible one. Public opinion is changing on this subject. The time is approaching when we shall consider it abhorrent to our civilization to allow a human being to lie in prolonged agony which we should mercifully end in any other creature. Believing this choice to be a social service in promoting wise views on this question, I have preferred chloroform to cancer. So the end of her own life was campaigning. She was campaigning for euthanasia by setting this example. So that's something that perhaps book groups might like to mm. discuss. Yeah. What that means to them, whether they think that's become a more modern idea or become more outdated, or if medical advances mean that hopefully not so many people would be having to consider such an option. Mm given that things such as pain relief now Mm -hmm. are so much improved Mm. compared to... An important thing is that Charlotte had seen her mother die painfully, hadn't she? So so she had witnessed firsthand Mm. what the situation as it was at the time. But interesting discussion Mm. points. Did you have any other important points about her life now that we've got to the end of it (laughs) yeah so one thing that I found out about Charlotte Perkins Gilman's writing later in her life was that it was undeniably racist she had some very strong views about African Americans and their place in society she did see the white race as superior she also thought there was some responsibility among white people for you know, having perpetrated slavery and therefore left African-Americans in a situation where they didn't have the education and the advantages that white people had. But her solution to that was about taking anybody who was not productive in society, not educated, making them be in a working situation where they would have to, for example, work on farms till such time as they were more economically productive and better educated and they could go off and get a job. That was her idea of what to do with the African-American population. So we do have to acknowledge that, that these are not views 
that we would encourage or agree with now. No. And so what Caroline and I thought, it might be an interesting discussion point as to when people have views that would now be seen as morally reprehensible, do we ignore everything else they said? It'll go on the question list for book groups, but it's an interesting idea as to how much we cancel that person because of their outdated and unacceptable views or how much we how prepared we are to consider their other ideas yeah and whether we condemn ideas or condemn a person and also how much we can learn from actually addressing and acknowledging those views do we put them into the background and say that's too difficult to consider or do we look at what people thought and then use that to inform how we take a different perspective You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. So I think we should move on to talking about the book now. Yes. Well, because there is so much to discuss in this novel, there's so many issues, that we've decided to focus our discussion through three particular incidents in this story and then talk about our views. So our male characters, I've written in my notes, can't really be described as heroes, although they do provide the action and impetus for the plot. Yes, so we're seeing this new world through their eyes. So in some ways they represent the modern person in general, as well as just men, because they're going into this very unusual society. Mm. With their view of an ordinary, inverted commas, world. So we're going to look first at chapter four, which is called Our Venture, which tells of the attempted escape by the men who waded, jumped and clambered down a rocky riverbed, travelling all night to uh, flee their captors. You yeah. can just imagine it in a Bond film or something. Yeah. And there, was a, there were various literature works at that time about these adventurers going to you know, King Solomon's Mines or, or any of those sorts of things where you'd have these heroes. Um, so they are a parody of that in this Oh, bit. yes, that had quite gripped the public yeah, consciousness yeah. at the time, hadn't it, of yeah. adventurers. And, yeah. Yeah, so during their escape attempt, the men remark on... Um, the clothes that they've been provided mm. with is they've been provided with similar clothes to those which the women mm-hmm. wore which was a bit of a shock to them and they note the considerable number of pockets yeah. <laughs> which is something that comes up in um in, in sort of comedy routines and things oh, about yeah, it's quite cliched now isn't it yeah, it's about, about how not women's pockets, clothes so. have no pockets yeah. which they don't <laughs> when you're trying to carry hankies when you've got a cold and your jeans aren't haven't got real pockets but the clothes are an interesting symbol in this novel because they are all designed for comfort practicality and freedom of mm. movement now i can remember being about 15 or 16 and realizing this thing about women's clothes mm. that they i suddenly went they're all designed so that we can't move <laughs> so that actually we're disempowered and then it was um there was a tire advert for pirelli where they put this big guy who was a sprinter i think yeah. and they showed him on the starting blocks in his athletic gear wearing high heels oh right and i vaguely remember that their point was that 
powers nothing without the right tyres. Mm. So they put him in yeah. women's shoes. Yeah. But to me at the time, that screamed, oh my God, that's what they do to us. <laughs> they're taking away, they're disempowering us. They're making it so that we can barely move our legs in the pencil skirts of the time, <laughs> putting us in heels so we can't run and mm. barely walk and are in pain by the end of the evening and need someone to get everything for us. So... For me, from then on, from that moment of realisation, looking at that Pirelli advert, and it's always sort of been quite an important symbol in my literary awareness. So I quite liked it that she used that and that they noticed and commented on it. So when the men are greeted by uh, Kellis, Alima and Elidor, the the women can outrun and outclimb them. They're strong. Because they're used to doing physical activities. Mm -hmm. Because the women are still quite lean because they're still women, even though they're very strong. They say something about, well, you wouldn't say a racehorse isn't strong just because it's not a cart horse. (laughs) They have this physical strength, the dexterity and agility, and all the women do. Yes. Because they've never been stopped from doing anything. No, and they've had really healthy food. They're farmers and they grow lots of vegetables, and, Mm. and I suppose that has helped them with their physical condition as well. There's no illness as well. No, that's true. So yeah. they, they don't get weakened by mm. illness and bugs. and So their energy never has to be spent on uh, fighting mm. fighting disease. Yeah. So <laughs> the men are entirely unsuccessful <clears throat> in their attempt to try and grab the women and uh, find themselves surrounded by women that they named the colonels. Yes, this is the older ones who had been responsible for their education when they were still in captivity. Mm. And Terry in particular complains a lot about those, doesn't he? Because he doesn't want to be looking at old women all day. No, because Terry's attitude is that women are there for men, for the pleasure of men, to serve men. And as such, he's only interested in the younger ones because he's really only interested in ones that he would quite like to have sex with. And um, that doesn't include the older ones. So he really objects to them because for him they have really no function no. and he particularly doesn't like them having any control or or being able to tell him what to do, mm. which of course they can. Yes. Which rather puts his nose out of joint. So the women had supervised this attempt to make for their play and uh, they return them to where they had them before. Yeah. And There's no violence about it though, is there? No. It's as though they've just run off they've been a bit silly they played truant and they now have to come back yes <laughs> yes the first time they captured them they had anaesthetized them hadn't they they did when they first arrived in the land they yeah. were captured um would you consider that anaesthetizing mm. someone without their consent is i think that's a fairly violent it act. is yeah it's not no, like punching right, them in the face, but... No. Yeah, it is. But on this occasion, they don't need to do that, do they? They just sort of gather them in and take <laughs> them back. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> back home. So Terry refuses to accept this and is really cross about the possibility that there really are no men. Mm. I suppose he feels uncomfortable. And in the end, he asks where the real men are. And it gives them, the women the opportunity to explain that children are born by virgin birth. Didn't you have something to say about that? I did, yes. And we'd also learn that this population of mothers has been going on for 2,000 years. Mm. And that gives us a very clear parallel with Christianity because we've got a religion, and as it turns out, motherhood is something of a religion for this community. And 
got a religion that started 2,000 years ago with a virgin birth. <laughs> and we're supposed to find this unbelievable. <laughs> and yet, of course, that has been widely accepted in these men's real world. People just blindly accepting it. But when it's women who are in charge of it, it suddenly seems unusual and unbelievable. And strange, yeah. too. They have a conversation where I, I think it's Terry, it must be Terry, saying... Well, you have to have competition and that sort of thing. Otherwise, there's no need for productivity. Mm. There's no incentive. There's, no one would do anything. Mm. And, and the women are really puzzled by this. They, they question them further about this. Like, why would they... Oh, excuse that plane going overhead. Yeah. Why, why would they not work? Why would they not work unless there was competition? And mm. they, they didn't get all this. So that allowed Charlotte, our writer Charlotte, to really question the economic system based on competition and free markets and mm. so on. So again, she's, she's getting her political and sociological issues in there. So Terry puffs up and enjoys the fact that the women want to learn from them as they do not know about men. Mm. So that, that goes along with his rather large ego that he likes having stroke. Yes, and it's really just that they're so curious about everything. They want to learn Yes. so much they want to know everything about the outside world they don't just dismiss men and say no you must keep out of our society they welcome them in and they want to get as much knowledge and information as they possibly can out of them yes and they do actually really their attitude in the end becomes one of perhaps opening up their society or at least experimenting with the possibility which is to go along with their love of learning, isn't it? Yeah, you might expect them to be insular because they've been physically isolated for 2,000 years and you would imagine them trying to ward off any threats from outside. But they're quite pragmatic. They sort of think, well, perhaps this is the way forward for our society. Perhaps Mm. we should interact with the outside world. Perhaps we should introduce fathers, which is an Mm. important thing that happens at the end. Yes, they're very interested in the concept of fatherhood because... Mm. You, you rightly said earlier that motherhood is is like a religion to them. It's the basis of their society. It's something that they hold very dear, which the men, again, struggle with understanding quite what they mean by that. So I think they're sort of wondering whether fatherhood might have a, a similar value. Or mm. The men don't really know what this means or what they're talking about. Mm. Terry especially mm. is kind of doesn't get that notion at all. In the end, though, they decide not to invite the rest of the world in don't they particularly put off by the idea of disease and contagion yeah. i think and by terry's behavior oh yes yes so as the plot develops we see further discussion of how concepts of health organization of resources education childhood sorry child care and motherhood are examined now the child care one is interesting mm. when we think about Charlotte's life herself where she was quite happy unusually Mm -hmm. for her child to be partly brought up by someone else yeah and in this book the women are quite happy with that just because you give birth to a child doesn't mean that you have to be solely responsible for their care Mm. because that's given to specialists yes the child care is done by those who have a particular aptitude and who want to do it and that's their role within the community so those who are less like that will do something else. There's different roles like being a forester or a gardener, looking after different aspects of society. And it's really about where somebody's talents lie. But that doesn't mean that you can't be a mother if you're not particularly 
maternal or don't like looking after little children all day. Yeah, it's also a very um, open and, and progressive approach, really, isn't mm. it? Because something that postnatal depression has not gone away, the treatment maybe has improved since the rest cure was mm. advised. And, you know, we do now have midwives going out into the community and trying to check whether mothers need mm. any help. But you can see why, given what we've learned about Charlotte's life and what we learn about her attitudes towards it from her other work, that this seems to be her personal view, mm. that perhaps not every mother is suited to childcare. Mm. And actually, why should she be? And why are women made to feel failures if they don't want to do it? And it didn't detract from the value that society was putting on the child itself at all. No. Right, so moving on, we're going to skip a bit because we could go through every chapter in great detail and we'd all die before we got to the end of the podcast. So we're moving to chapter 10 where they discuss their religions and marriages and Van falls in love with Elidor and is keen to learn from her. Taking on that enthusiasm they've displayed for learning, so he's sort of quite influenced by her and wants to sort of reflect it back to her, I think. Yeah, so you wonder whether he's kind of putting it on, sort of mirroring her in order to try and win her favour. Yes, there could be some of that going on. So Charlotte takes this opportunity to examine the key tenets of different religions from the point of view of an intelligent person who's not just been exposed to it. And in so doing, she's able to question with sort of unassuming and innocent eyes, which Mm. means that everything is up for questioning and everything is up for grabs without any assumptions necessarily being made. (laughs) I I listen to this on audiobook as well as read it, and this bit made me laugh on audiobook for some reason. They believe that God was love and wisdom and power, and yet that such God would put little new babies to burn for eternity. Mm. I mean, that's a bit sick of me to laugh at that, but it just seemed so ridiculous when yeah. I heard it on the audiobook. Um, that of course, Elidor is, is really, really shocked by this yeah. notion that that she's sort of going, so he's got, so God's love, yes, and wisdom, yes, and power, yes, but we'll burn little babies <laughs> yeah. forever. And it, it, then I suppose we're laughing at a tenet of the Catholic faith, isn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. Which... Well, probably shouldn't do, because there are people who... <laughs> you get smited. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. But I think it's the way that it's presented that, that invited that reaction from me. And uh, uh, mm. So I'm, I'm passing the blame <laughs> here. Why do you think she did that? Why? Because it might have just been me in, in the mood I was in when I was listening yeah, to it. But... I think it is sort of seeing things from an outside point of view. It does make them look contradictory and often ridiculous. <laughs> So I think she's using Elidor as this person who hasn't been exposed to these ideas to really show, well, what on earth is this all about? Mm. Yes, because when you live with a religion and you and you are taught it from when you're very young, although you may ask questions, some of it probably doesn't seem ludicrous or bizarre mm. in nature because you're so used to it, you're yeah. so conditioned by it. Rather like your comment earlier about the, the virgin birth and one yeah. set of circumstances seeming a- absurd, but... Okay, so again, in the discussion between the characters, they consider the importance of the ideas of the past and their place in current thinking should be, whether they should be respected or abandoned. Mm. There are quite different attitudes towards the past from the two different societies, aren't they? Mm. The men have quite a lot of respect for their heritage Mm. and history, and the women keep theirs quite short. 
Did yeah. You, did you notice that? Yeah. They sort of only concentrate on fairly recent events. Mm. And they mention it about the names because the women don't have surnames. No. Because they don't take the name of a husband or father or anything. And they say, so everyone has their own original name. She says, yes, everybody living has their own original name. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I see. So names do get recycled. Yes. But they don't pay attention to long lineages of history in a way. In the way that I suppose that approach to history is quite male. Mm. Well, I started owning this and (laughs) I started this family and this is my heritage. And they're not treating life like that at all. No, they do live in the present. There was some mention of their their history sort of being in units of kind of 20 years or or 100 years at most, whereas the others were talking thousands. And they do have an idea of their history and how they got to where they are, sort Mm. of the 2,000-year history and what happened when their community became isolated. But yes, they're not worshipping figures from the past. They haven't really got the concept of ancestry. No. Because mm. they're not looking at male lineage. Mm. Elidor discusses with Van what it means for them to have motherhood as their religion. An upholding, unfailing, serviceable love. But it's worship free. Yeah. And she discusses with him about that they don't give to their mothers. He's, he mm. sort of suggests that you need to give something back to mm. your mother. And she sort of says, why? Yeah. <laughs> so they really don't understand each other when it comes to the attitude towards motherhood. Did you have any comment on that? Or I think the idea of the bit you just quoted, the upholding, unfailing and serviceable love, it almost sounds like a liturgy that we might hear mm. in Christian church. And yet it's not that at all. It's completely different. Um, so I think perhaps Gilman is highlighting the differences. The discussion on religion does lead to an exploratory conversation about marriage particularly the possessive nature a feature of modern marriage and mm. marriage practice and the marriages take place yes so we've got alima marrying terry van gets married to elador and we've got jeff and kellis mm. rather different marriages how mm. would you sum them up caroline i think the one between terry and alima is extremely complicated it's all based on power and they argue a lot I suppose this also ties into what we think about the men's characters generally Mm. because we've got Jeff who is kind of the chivalrous one he is set up as being he has quite a romantic view of womanhood and femininity and he wants somebody to worship but while retaining the power in patriarchal society Mm. and then we've got Van who as we've said he is the one who is narrating it so he's obviously going to present himself as a nice bloke yeah. but he seems to imply that he and Elador are equal and that they have this very much loving marriage and, and that they are enthusiastic about everything and they want to share things and learn from each other I think it's them that has quite an interesting discussion about the sexual nature of their marriage because yeah. Elador is really puzzled by why they would be having sex yeah, when, they, when they, they don't need to. Yeah, it's only for breeding in her mind. Yes. Yeah. And Van is trying to convince her that it's something more than that and it's mm. actually a great ex- expression, almost a spiritual love mm. and things. She she quite likes the sound of it, but yeah, she but doesn't seem overly convinced. No. She doesn't see how the two particularly go together. So, yes, they have this 
it's a very different style of marriage from from mm. that which would have, the men have, would have witnessed before and the men still see the marriages as gaining proprietal rights over the women and we can see that partly because of Terry's actions mm. are you going to say something about that yeah now? there is a hint earlier on where Van says Jeff and I feared the worst mm. about Terry and Alima's relationship and we do then discover that Terry attempts to rape his wife yeah and she manages to escape um, she kicks him fights him off and she escapes and disappears and never speaks to him again mm. but this is a catalyst for a big change in the situation it is now, it also gives the opportunity to look at some of the attitudes because Terry really doesn't think he's doing anything wrong at no. all. He actually thinks he's teaching his wife and that mm. she should be learning from him and that women want to be mastered mm. and that actually he's well within his rights. And back in the the States at the time, he would have been. Yeah. And it was he would have been in England at the mm. time until the 90s when it became illegal yeah. to rape your wife within marriage. And the other men do defend him mm. and say to their wives well you know he was only acting as you would yeah and they disagree quite strongly on that so that leads to the expulsion in chapter 12 that incident then moves on to terry having to be punished and his punishment is to be expelled from her land yeah so they're not going to imprison him or kill him or anything like that but he has to go terry doesn't feel any shame or regret though he's he maintains the idea that he was within his right mm -hmm. and he does something that i thought is very interesting he, he throws insults particularly the older women yeah. particularly the women in authority calling them old maids and that yeah. sort of thing and it really reminded me of how women get insulted about age constantly but that's what he uses is is he insults the old maids and just suggests that they really don't get it you know mm. they're not proper women they need real men maybe one day they'll understand so he has to go yeah but then he gets a bit uppity about it mm. he is being expelled and van the narrator and elador both decide that they're going to go with him the, the other two men are not expelled but it's up to them whether they go with terry or not so jeff decides to stay in her land He's described as herlandized. I think it's Terry who calls him that, isn't it? That he has been absorbed into the society. And Kellis, we find out, is pregnant. So unlike the previous births, which were by parthenogenesis, this baby will be the first one to have a father. So they're going to stay, and there's some kind of idea that this is going to be a new era for herland with the mm. birth of this baby. Yeah. Whether that will pan out well or not, we don't know at this stage. Mm. And then Terry threatens that he's going to tell everybody when he gets mm. back home about Herland and where it is. Yeah. Because they say to them, when you return home, you must not say anything about mm. allocation and so on. And, and he says that he will. And so they, they say to him, well, then we'll anaesthetise you. Yeah. Um, and they more or less say permanently, yeah. which isn't actually a threat to kill him explicitly, but it, no. it sounds fairly like one to oh. me. And so he decides to uh, cooperate a bit more and they let him go. And there is a sequel to this book, which yes. we have, neither of us have read, no. but quite curious to know how it, how it uh, does pan out. Well, in due course, we could do an episode about that. 
Yes, we could. Maybe this time we next year or something. Yes, yeah. yes, maybe in a year's time, yeah. Before they leave, the women ask questions about the existence of disease and how it's sometimes contagious. And they're also concerned about ignorance and prejudice mm. and unbridled emotion that leads to unrest and combat. Mm. They're not very keen on any of those ideas, and that's no. why they decide that they don't actually, at this point want to mix with the outside world where for me alarm bells are ringing that you've got a father in your midst yeah. in, your, in your society now this is not mm. this is all going to change which is why I think it would be quite interesting to read the sequel and see yeah. what Gilman where she wanted to take it so yes that's that's where it ends yes a lot of the time in the book is is spent exploring these ideas right okay so we are going to put a list of discussion points and hopefully you will enjoy those as a book group do let other people know that we are running um this book group that we're going to put out our list of books for the year so you'll have plenty of time you have a whole month between episodes you don't have to stick to our timetable we'll try and stick to as caroline will i'll be running behind (laughs) trying to catch up (laughs) No, no, I'm going to be on time this year. So we will be on time once a month. At the beginning of the month, we will release a new podcast and supporting materials. So we hope you enjoy it and subscribe. So we'll see you next time. Um, Thank you very much for listening and subscribing. Uh, It's really great to have you with us. And please do let us know any comments or questions that you have. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much.